Welcome to the sixth episode of Sound the Foghorn Fansided's official San Francisco Giants podcast. If you aren't already, make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And please leave those five-star reviews. If you do, make sure to leave a question for me in your com in your comment, and we'll make sure to answer it in a future episode. I am your host, Mark DeLuke, and today I am joined by a mainstay of Giants Twitter, Kevin Cunningham. You're probably familiar with his previous work at McCovey Chronicles, and he now works as the editor and writer over at Giants Future, Giant Futures, a new site focused on the Giants and their prospects. Kevin, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. So, you know, we'll start. We're recording this early afternoon in California Saturday, and, you know, some breaking news, probably the biggest prospect news for Giants fans really since around the draft is that top outfield prospect Alexander Canario tore or dislocated his left shoulder in instructional league play, tore his labrum, and now had uh, shoulder surgery on that and is likely out for the majority, if not all, of next season. What was your first reactions when you heard that news? My reaction was, oh my God, what are we going to do for the Rule 5 draft now? But uh, other than that, it was a surprise. We'd been generally lucky with injury news for the prospects this year, short of uh, Elliot Ramos. But with Canario, this is a big deal because it comes right as we're dealing with, do you put him on the 40-man roster to protect him from the Rule 5 draft? Up until now, I think most people had him as a sure thing, but now, eh. Yeah, and the other sort of complicating factor, too, is in in an obvious sense, it makes him, you know, you know, less of a. There's more question marks going forward, right? His prospect status, you know, at least for a moment, is somewhat put on hold. At the same time, it also makes it potentially more desirable for another team to pick him in the Rule Five draft because they can, if they can hold that 40-man roster spot through the off-season, they'll probably be able to store him on the 60-man, 60 60-day 60 IL for a good portion of next season if not you know all of next season and then have another year where you know they might who knows what the new cba will say about the service time requirements and whatnot yeah and that's kind of the biggest thing is you've got a lot of unknowns right now uh, the way it works for the listeners is for the rule five draft if someone drafts a player they have to keep them on the active roster the entire season but you can put them on the injured list if he's injured that said, he has to be on the active roster for 90 days or else all the Rule 5 rules carry over to the following season. Um, but 2021, we don't know how long the season's going to be. In 2020, they shortened the amount of active days required because of the shorter season. That often means that it's going to be a short amount of days at the end of the year when Canario might actually be healthy. So that's uh, a big risk. And like you said, there's the CBA at the end of next year. We don't know how that's going to carry over to the following season. So there's so many unknowns that you got to play with. That really is a bit of Russian roulette here. Yeah, no doubt. And, you know, the, again, it's the tricky thing, too, because I think most fans are sort of accustomed to, you know, thinking throwing shoulder with a pitcher. That's obviously a huge deal. But, you know, with hitters, there's it's not you know, this isn't um you know, a routine injury either for hitters. This is again like a nine to twelve plus month, you know, rehab recovery usually. And you know, that's time where for a lot of it, they're not even able to be swinging the bat. They're not able to, you know, obviously they're not going to be taking pitches and seeing things. And for a guy like Canario, who's probably right, the biggest um, tool in his development that he's working on is pitch recognition and is you know putting together good at bats so he can tap into his plus power. You know, th- th- that's that's some you know critical lost time. It absolutely is, and that's something that a picking team is going to have to think about, is this is a guy who's going to take up space on your roster for a good part of a season. We don't know which one. And to be honest, while a lot of people have him as a sure thing to protect in the Rule 5, I wasn't so sure because I don't think he can really last. His pitch recognition needs a lot of work, and that's only going to happen in games. It's not going to happen in cages. It's not going to happen in batting tunnels you got to have him facing live pitching who's really trying to compete with him. And, uh, I mean, i got to be honest. Out of all of our top prospects, I've always thought Canario is the biggest risk. I think he's the most likely to never see anything close to his ceiling. But with this, it just kind of blows it up now with the Rule 5 talk. So we'll see how it goes. But I could honestly see the Giants taking that risk and not putting him on the the 40-man roster and using that spot for something else. I, I also think there's a, you know, again, we've 
talked about it. We've both written about it in various places. This is, this organization is now stacked in the outfield, right? Uh, top to bottom with prospect depth, but also again, like you have Mike Sierskremski, who's clearly you know at least an above average everyday player, looked like more this year. Mauricio Debone, who looks like he could be an everyday player. And you go through every level level of the minor leagues, and especially at the bottom where you have Luis Matos and Hunter Bishop and Elliot Ramos, like you know. My, you know, I'm higher on Canario than most. I'm kind of with Roger Munter, where I really like the potential. I agree he's quite risky, but again, there's a lot of upside there. And, you know, I ranked him fourth between Elliot Ramos and Hunter Bishop, but that also means the Giants still have Elliot Ramos and Hunter Bishop, who are also probably closer to the major leagues and have a lot of the similar ceiling characteristics of Canario. I, also, this is, you know, I'm just going off here because I'm thinking about it, but I wonder, too, if you're a team like the Giants, you know, if there is a team out there that's maybe interested in stashing him on the 40-man roster but doesn't want to deal with the Rule 5 draft, I wonder, like, let's say the Royals, do you call the Giants and go, here's some low-level minor league pitcher, You would you swap Canario for now? You don't have to worry about protecting him, we'll protect him, and then we don't have to worry about the big league service time requirement. Um, you know, I think the Giants would probably rather try to stash him and get through. But, you know, the fact is they have this they have this number of outfield prospects and obviously prospects. There's no such thing as a sure thing. But when you have depth somewhere and weaknesses elsewhere, you wonder when they sort of start trying to kind of hedge that. And if they think Canario is going to get drafted, if they don't protect him and they don't want to protect him, maybe that's a path they could look at as well. Oh, it, it absolutely is. But the problem, of course, with the trade right now is you're getting absolutely uh, yes. worst value off of that. And, you know, with this new regime, we're still figuring out where they are in terms of valuing people and data. But normally you're going to want to try to get the best value possible out of someone, especially your prospects. So we'll see how it goes. I think any of that talk of trade might just come up if there's a team that goes after him in the Rule 5 draft. But first, we need to see if the Giants will protect him or not. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, the main reason I, I want to have you on this week is because there's, as you mentioned, uncertainty. There's a lot of that in minor league baseball. There's been a lot of that, and we're, we've started to get some semblance of what we're going to see if, I mean, that's aside from COVID, you know, what we're going to see if there is a, post-pandemic minor league system and but it's something that's frankly complicated and convoluted because minor league systems already quite complicated and how it functions and so um, I've been kind of following it somewhat you know getting kind of the general things uh, but the specifics of it and sort of the nuances I know you're more um, up to date on so I'll start with just kind of a general thing and then obviously this is a broad impossible question to answer and then we can work from there but <laughs> What is happening in the minor leagues right now, or with the minor leagues right now? Uh, chaos. Yeah. Chaos is happening. <laughs> uh, and honestly, it it looks as disorganized as possible. At this point, Major League Baseball has essentially taken control of everything. There is no longer a minor league baseball body that is negotiating with them. Major League Baseball appears to have just straight gone to the teams and started to say, are you in or are you out? And a lot of the minor league teams still seem to be very unsure about their place. The New York Yankees, New York Mets, both uh, announced kind of officially in the Mets case, but officially in the Yankees case, who their minor leaguers are going to be. And the teams that were left out that were once a part of it, especially Trenton, New Jersey, which was a long, long time Yankees affiliate, they were kind of blindsided. It sounded like they found out about it via Twitter. And I think that was uh, true for one of the Mets affiliates as well, Charleston, and or excuse me, Columbia. And that's crazy. And that tells you the amount of negotiations that are going on. It's less negotiations than demands and choices. And teams that are in are being let know, and teams that are out are also being, uh, letting, being let know as well. And it's interesting to note that the one other piece of information that came out was the Rochester Red Wings. This Western New York AAA team announced that they will not be with the Twins next year. And this is the first time a minor league team has gone out and made an announcement before the major league affiliates are. And they do apparently know that they are going to be affiliated with someone. They said they'll make their announcements by December 1st. 
And after that, Major League Baseball said, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop the leaks. So who knows when we're going to find something out. But it sounds like this is all still ongoing for a lot of teams. Yeah, and you can obviously read Major League Baseball doing it in a lot of ways. You can say, for one thing, because they're going to be removing a lot of affiliates, right, sort of if you're unfamiliar, the broad scope thing is basically Major League Baseball is going to try to cut at least around 30 minor league teams from affiliate ball. They claim they'll try to give them like independent leagues or college wood bat leagues to replace that. And that's sort of a separate side conversation about the negative impact that has. But um, (laughs) those, you know, teams that get cut, that's bad press for the league because the reality is one right now is not, is a time where if you're making downsizing and you have the economic ability not to downsize, that's rightfully being criticized. And, you know, major league baseball is really doing this, because it's just kind of a cost-cutting measure. This isn't something that's going to drastically um, save them money. There's you know certain marketing elements that are positive from this that MLB can now you know potentially you know sort of one baseball as they've been as Commissioner Manfred's been trying to go for. Although again, there's lots of reason to be skeptical about what the true intentions of that are. But by doing it all at once, right, you kind of bury the impact right because there's 30 teams get cut all once versus one team gets cut here and then another team gets cut here and then each time you know the writers who cover that city or cover that team are going to be writing about it and then you know that could be a storyline that goes on for weeks and months and i also think you know potentially a more com- another component of it is they want to be able to kind of renege on these deals till the last minute for the most leverage right like they want to be able you know once that announcement's made that if rochester said right where the Giants affiliate, obviously that wouldn't make sense. But you know, we're someone's affiliate, then it puts baseball in the awkward position of if they want to try to extract something more, they're trying to move things around at the last minute. Then you know, there's some even more confusing press that has to come out. And so I think that's also a part of it. Oh, there absolutely is, and this is all moving parts at this point. And Major League Baseball does not want. A Steve Harvey moment, whereas you know Steve Harvey names the wrong Miss Universe, and suddenly you've got a team like the Chicago Cubs or even the Florida Marlins. Who cares about them? But even they're going to be announcing a new AAA affiliate, and uh, you know you don't want the announcements to go back and forth because that's going to look bad for everybody. Uh, and this is now minor league, or excuse me, this is now Major League Baseball's boat. You know. The minor league captains have all been thrown off the boat. It's all Major League Baseball, so there's no blame game that can be played. It would only be Rob Manfred taking the blame for that. And I still think that he's hurting from the piece of metal comment. The last thing he wants to do is say that his one baseball plan is falling apart because he tried to push minor league baseball out without a new plan in place. Yeah, and also because, as I think that's the perfect way of putting it, because as we've seen so often with Manfred, he has really consistently to me the dogma he has followed like there's a the one thing he's followed is he's been trying to put more power in his office and in broader terms ownership's position right getting more power into ownership's hands and we we've seen this with how he's handled you know whether it's cba player negotiations and we're seeing it here where i think you make a, a perfectly right point there was no plan but the contract was up with minor league baseball and he saw that as an opportunity to leverage the minor league baseball executives out of there and basically force team ownerships, which again, if you're unfamiliar, minor league baseball works peculiarly. I mean, it it is (laughs) a, you know, age system that needed, you know, reinvention and needed to kind of be reconfigured, but there's plenty of alternatives that wouldn't have necessarily required teams to be cut because major league teams play the set, pay the salary, of the players, although again, calling that a salary is really even more than it's worth. But you know, pay <laughs> yes. stipends of sorts to the players, so the teams aren't responsible for paying for that. But then they handle the marketing, they make the ticket revenue, and things of that nature. So, it's, I mean, it's just a mess. It really is. And one other thing to remember is this whole plan was put in play back in 2019 yeah and the plan itself had been in the works for a while and who was behind the plan but the real villain of baseball over the last five years i think everyone agrees on even giants and dodgers fans and that's former astros gm jeff lunow or however you pronounce his last name i won't bother with him because i don't care but he's the guy who put this plan in place 
he's the cheapy who said, let's just cut all these teams. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't things that Major League Baseball wants out of the minors that doesn't make sense. A lot of this stuff does. Getting better facilities is a real big deal. This isn't the right way to handle it, but it should be dealt with. Travel times are ridiculous. The South Atlantic League, oh man, this still blows my mind. The South Atlantic League reaches up to New Jersey. I'm sorry, New Jersey is not in the South Atlantic. And you know what else isn't? Kentucky. They're also in the South Atlantic League. Yeah, so talking about realignment, talking about travel times, this is all stuff that needed to happen. This is just being handled in the worst way possible. And then you put COVID-19 on top of it, which pretty much took any fight there was in the minor leagues out of the fight and is allowing baseball to run the show. I'm not sure that I can say they're running the show into the ground at this point, but it definitely feels disjointed and uncontrolled. So well, I, we'll see. And I think, you know, Lunau being the architect, what did he do with the Astros, right? He ran them into the ground and then sure he developed <laughs> a competitor with some, you know, other things involved. But I think there was a piece in baseball prospectus on sort of, you know, reconsidering Moneyball and sort of the fallout of it, right? Is like, uh, we're seeing kind of the longer-term effects in baseball of kind of the equity trader mindset that's really seeped into, I mean, really everywhere, even on the player side and ownership side, and we're seeing sort of Manfred follow that there. So do we know anything about the Giants minor league situation? Well, we know one thing for sure. The Giants will still be affiliated with San Jose because the Giants are majority owners with the San Jose Giants. That's about it for what we know 100%. 90% we know Sacramento will almost certainly stay the Giants' AAA affiliate. They're, the Giants do not own Sacramento, but everything makes sense for Sacramento to stay where they are. The California League is probably switching to low A, which means they're switching levels. So that throws the Giants into a problem because, of course, they've got this wonderful new stadium with the Augusta Green Jackets in the South Atlantic League, who are also staying at low A. And since the Giants own San Jose, they're not staying with Augusta. So it is 99.9% .9 sure Augusta is no longer a Giants affiliate. The Richmond Flying Squirrels are a different story. Uh, baseball seems intent on this geographic appropriateness, you know, trying to get teams, uh, affiliate teams close to their major league teams. That doesn't happen in AA on the West Coast. The only, the westernmost AA league is the Texas League. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, Henry Schulman recently reported that's about a 50-50 decision, and that's about what I've been hearing as well. But there is a pretty good chance the Giants won't be with Richmond in AA next year. Um, and then, of course, you've got the Northwest League, which is being risen from the soon-to-be-eliminated short A-ball uh, level. And they're apparently going to be a high A league. So that will replace the California League for the Giants. The Giants have been affiliated with the Salem-Kaiser Volcanoes for a couple of decades now. But Salem-Kaiser was on the initial cut list because, sorry, Mr. Walker, the facilities aren't that great there. Um, whether or not that's still going to happen, we don't know. Binghampton was also on the initial uh, to-be-eliminated list, but they were recently announced as staying as one of the Mets affiliates next year. So we don't know if Salem-Kaiser will be around. We don't know if the Giants will be affiliated with Salem-Kaiser, even if Salem-Kaiser is still around next year, because it's baseball that's making the alignments. So to TLDR, all of that, San Jose at the low level, someone in the Northwest League at the high A level, but we don't know who. Double A, maybe Richmond, maybe someone in the Texas League. Triple A will still be Sacramento. And then I have seen sort of, bits and pieces on this and i'm not sure i thought i read somewhere that major league baseball is going to eliminate the option to have multiple teams in the arizona league because the giants i know recently expanded to two is that something that's been clarified that if we know that they'll have to cut down to one or if every team will be allowed to have two uh it has not been clarified okay. but uh baseball america has been reporting that's probably going to be kept to just one and that is one of the big parts of the luna plan is less minor leaguers so trying to cut down those spots. And another question, of course, that hasn't been addressed at all is what well, about the Dominicans uh, Summer League, where a lot of teams also have two players in those complexes. That hasn't been mentioned at all. Uh, what I've been hearing is that may still be allowed since 
They like having that expanded spot for the multitude of younger players there. But that's still very much up in the air as well. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's just frustrating. I mean, because whether it is truly incompetent, more nefarious intent on the hands of Major League Baseball or what's often the case, some combination of the two, is that like lots of people's like livelihoods are at stake with this, right? Like team affiliations have implications for revenue. If you're only a summer bat league, you're not going a summer college wood bat league. You are not going to be making, you know, the revenue not being able to have the length of season. If you're a low, if you're a class A team or you're a high A team. And so um, hopefully this gets clarified and on sort of, I guess, a more baseball level though, right. My understanding the Texas league is a pretty hitter friendly league, right? Generally speaking, I mean, obviously you got the plain states, which means uh, that you got low flat land, you've got a lot of wind, and especially as it goes more south into Texas, you got a lot of warm air. So uh, San Antonio, which will be going back into the Texas League, uh, reportedly, yeah, that's going to be a launching pad. Not quite Lancaster, California level, <laughs> but pretty close. Um, and by the way, if you're Giants fans, hope that we don't end up in San Antonio. In the Texas League, if we change from Richmond, the Giants' most ideal situation in AA will be to land the Wichita Wind Surge. If you haven't heard of them, don't worry. They were supposed to start play in 2020. They are actually the former AAA New Orleans Baby Cakes, okay. which I still cannot say without rolling my eyes. It was so much better as the New Orleans Zephyrs. Uh, anyways, they AAA New Orleans was moving to Wichita to stay in AAA. Reportedly, Wichita is going to be moved to AA now, which I'm sure the city leaders are thrilled about. And um, But you're going to get a completely brand new, literally unused minor league field and new facilities. Now, that doesn't mean they match what the new major league standards are going to be for minor league facilities, but that's definitely a lot better than... Uh, some of the other options out there. So if you're a Giants fan, if you're not rooting for Richmond, root for Wichita. Yeah, and I'm just thinking too, with that switch, you know, looking into, you know, obviously you don't fully scout the stat line, but like, you know, there's going to be a lot of sticker shock if, you know, if they did do that dramatic switch, right, from Richmond to San Antonio, right? Like people are going to be really high on a lot of hitting prospects that they probably wouldn't have been had they been at Richmond and vice versa on pitching prospects. Oh, yeah, it's going to be a big difference in comparison because you're going from the Eastern League, which is very much a pitcher's league, to that hitter's league. So trying to compare AA stats from two or three years ago, just it'll be not quite apples and oranges, but it's going to be really different apples. Yeah, and so, you know, as we sort of, you know, when those teams get settled and if there is a minor league season, and again, everything with, frankly, 2021 and possibly beyond has a lot of ifs on it right now. But where do you kind of see this Giants farm system at? You know, when we look away from the minor league teams and we look at those minor league players, what are the things that stand out to you? Well, when I started covering the minor leagues, uh, the Giants had Todd Linden as their top outfield prospect. And to be quite <laughs> honest, ever since then, it's been a series of interesting top outfield prospects who were not able to make it for one reason or another. I still am sad about Frankie Peggs, frankly. But uh, this is the best outfield crop we've seen in a long time, to the point that you start to wonder about that space, like we were talking about at the top of this uh, podcast. Uh, Ramos is great. Hunter Bishop is going to be a wonderful addition, whether he's playing in left or right field. Luis Matos... I mean, the videos I've hit. seen just opens my eyes. He can hit, and if he can get some better routes in center field, he's going to be quite the center fielder out there. And that's before you talk about, you know, some of, like Mike Yastrzemski. You know, so yeah. where are these players going to play? How are they going to all fit in? It's a good question, but let's face it, this is a good problem to have, and that's great for the Giants in terms of the outfield. And obviously they have apparently the best catching prospect duo right now with uh, Joey Bart and Patrick Bailey, both first-round picks. Uh, infield's a little sparse, but it's really pitching where there's a lot of more uh, questions. They don't have a superstar pitcher in the prospects. They've got really interesting young pitchers like Seth Corey, 
and uh, Kyle Harrison. They both look really, really interesting and could be star pitchers. But are they going to be ace pitchers? Are you talking a Matt Kane or are you talking a Tim Lincecum? And right now these guys might be more on that Matt Kane level, which is very good, productive. Absolutely, you want to have them. But they're not going to be a Mass and Bumgarner or Tim Lincecum start the first game of a playoff series and get that win right at the start. And that's where the Giants are going to really be lacking, and they're going to need to look for it in other ways, at least the way that it's shaking out right now. Yeah, and I think, you know, even if not Matt Cain, I think, like, especially with a guy like Corey Jonathan Sanchez is a possible kind of outcome, too, in there, right? That's, again, you know, someone who's a solid pitcher, and, you know, you can slide into a competitive rotation, but, you know, there's definitely not, you know, there's a lot of quantity over top quality guy when it comes to the pitching side. And the thing about outfield too is even when you get beyond the top 10, there are a number of guys who in previous years, you know, we would have been, again, Jalen Davis would have been in conversation as the best Giants outfielder you go back three, four years. And again, that's more of an indictment on the Giants outfielders. But it's like, you know, there are a number of guys at all levels, whether you're looking at Jalen Davis, even you go down someone like Sandro Fabian. I'm really high on Armani Smith, who was drafted last year at UCSB. Obviously, we didn't get to see him make his full season debut this year, which kind of complicates it. But, you know, there are and Grant McRae was the third round pick last year. <laughs> who You know, it's it's uh, frankly a certain embarrassment of riches for the Giants. And obviously, you'd rather be on that side of it than where they've been. But it is sort of going to be, I think, the... In terms of, we haven't gotten a great sense of understanding how Farhan Zaidi and general manager Scott Harris view sort of allocating t- allocating pieces on a competitive roster, right? We've seen them, you know, look at sort of accumulating, as they would say, assets, right? Adding in, you know, grabbing a Will Wilson by taking on Zach Cozart's contract, right? Trading, you know, uh, Mark Melanson to unload the contract and get back a Tristan Beck, right? But we haven't seen how they... Ad- They've addressed the depth issues that were clearly in the system when they arrived, and they've really solidified depth at almost every spot. But we haven't seen how they deal with that depth once it's there, right? They were acquiring a Joe McCarthy from the Rays because they couldn't fit the <laughs> McCarthy on the 40-man roster, and they could. But soon it's going to be the other way around, right? Soon the Giants are going to have, and we're kind of seeing a early part of that this season, have more players on their 40-man roster or that deserve 40-man roster spots, then they can fit. How do they go about doing that? Is it they say, all right, we're willing to shop a Hunter Bishop or you know, shop a Alexander Canario or even an Elliot Ramos because we really like Mikey Stremski, Mauricio Debone, and we think you know this Luis Matos guy is going to be the third outfielder or you know, rotate that around however? Or do they look at it the opposite way where they say, you know, in – is you know, I'm not saying Giants fans are going to trade Mike Yastrzemski. I'm not saying they are. I don't think that's even in consideration. I'm saying, though, is there are teams that would approach it from that lens as well, and there are front offices that would say, you know, in a couple seasons, if they think Ramos is on the cusp and maybe Bishop's already made his de- or vice versa, Bishop's on the cusp and Ramos has made his debut, are they willing to move one of the more solidified pieces? I think that's sort of the, the biggest question uh, for Zaidi that I think we'll get to see answered over these next couple seasons. Oh, absolutely. And this sort of thing also plays into how well the team does at bringing these prospects into the majors and getting them going. Um, Let's be honest, Joey Bart didn't look ready this past year. And part of that is not anyone's fault because, you know, he didn't get the time at AAA that he really needed. So it's really hard to judge based on that. But we've seen a lot of great players with a lot of potential, absolutely fail in the majors because they either get put with too much right at the start, too much pressure, which honestly I'm afraid of with Joey Bart a little bit, although I think he'll be able to handle it. Um, Or you see players that are uh, coaches and managers that don't like putting the young guys in. Now, I don't think you're going to have that problem with Gabe Kapler, but is he going to throw him in too much? Or and this is something I really worry about with Zaidi, is he goes through players like a bachelor party going through a shot flight at a bar. Um, He's just like quick taste and gone. There goes Connor Joe. Quick taste and gone. There goes Joe McCarthy. The rule five picks have been a complete waste of everyone's time because he doesn't give them any chance to actually survive. There's no reason that Danny Jimenez shouldn't be in the system right now 
as a really interesting pitcher because the Giants couldn't hide him for most of the year, regardless of how competitive they were kind of sort of looking. There was enough room to have him yeah. on that roster. But, you know, he's just gone through these players so quickly. And that's a little worrisome for when he gets to the real prospects. And no offense to guys like Connor Joe, who, quite frankly, is looking good with the Dodgers right now, is going to come back to haunt Zaidi quite a bit. Um, and that's no offense to someone like Jalen Davis, who deserves a much bigger shot than he got this past year. But what's it going to look like for Ramos if he comes up and starts striking out at the same rate that he did when he got his first taste of double A? Mm -hmm. That's going to be normal. That's going to be expected. Ramos is a free swinger. He's going to need some time to adjust to major league uh, pitchers. Is Are we going to have a patient enough front office to give him that time? I know a lot of people think it's too early to make that judgment. It really is. But based on the last couple of years, that's a nagging worry in the back of my mind. Yeah, and I think you, you look at, you know, guys like Ramos, guys like Hunter Bishop, right, who, you know, similar kind of issue in his pro debut. Even you, know, you look at Will Wilson, who's not necessarily to those tier guys, but one of the top 10, 15 prospects in the system. And he struggled in his pro debut at rookie ball relative to what you'd expect from a guy out of college at, at you know, the Arizona League. And I think the other thing that worries me, too, is, and again, it's sort of interesting to now see, you know, what was, you know, Zaidi might have had disagreements with Andrew Friedman in the Dodgers organization, but we never got to see what they were because Friedman obviously had the power to overrule him. Right. And so, mm -hmm. you know, the Dodgers have consistently, you know, been very aggressive with platoons. And we saw the Giants do it this year. We saw Darren Ruff and Alex Dickerson being pinch hit for in the third inning or fourth inning. I mean, they were really, you know, dedicating themselves to that. But does that mean again, how does that does that transfer to their top prospects? Because like a guy like Elliot Ramos, who I believe we've seen with some, I know Alexander Canario's had some um, big platoon splits in the past. Are they going to quickly, are they going to give those guys the chance to take on same-sided pitching to, you know, develop that tool to become an everyday player? Or if they struggle, if they're a righty against righties or a lefty against lefties and they struggle, are they going to quickly get earmarked as, okay, this is a platoon guy, this is a Jock Peterson, right? And never get the chance to fully solidify themselves in an everyday role when they might fully have that capability. I think those are real important questions to have answered, and I think those are probably the biggest points of concern I'd have. And they're fair points, but the other side of it is when the Dodgers were going through and trying to put in all these platoons, they're doing it as a contending team, Yes, which makes a lot more sense. Whereas, hey, I'd love to see the Giants play spoilers. Realistically, we shouldn't be seeing them expecting them in the playoffs in the next two or three years. So these years would be the time to see whether or not Joey Bart needs a platoon, whether or not Ramos needs a platoon once they are up. Will the Giants be contained by the time they come up? Probably not. Um, but, you know, like you said, we're going to have to see. And Zaidi, we're going to have to see what his uh, patience is like with these young players. Yeah. And, you know, looking ahead, you mentioned, so you don't, I guess, when do you see that window opening? What do you see sort of as the two, three-year plan for these Giants? Marco Luciano. The moment Marco Luciano hits the ground running, he's not going to get time to prove whether or not he's in a platoon. Uh, he's special. I mean, he is Willie Mays' close-level special. Um, obviously, a lot of things can go wrong, and I'm probably cursing him, jinxing him by saying that. Um, but when he hits the ground, the Giants want to have a plan in place at that point and have the guys around him, such as Joey Bart, such as Sean Jelly in the rotation, uh, such as Ramos and Bishop, hopefully already established in the outfield. Mike is uh, still carrying over. I'm going to stay silent on that. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah, well, I, 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 I love Yaz. I want him to stay a giant. I'm not putting money on him staying a giant next year. Yes. We'll see. Yeah. But um, yeah, but that's the kind of thing. So the Giants really do have uh, that plan is centered around uh, uh, Luciano. We're going to see when Luciano makes it. I don't think Luciano is going to get the Juan Soto push, partially just because 2020 happened. Um, but 
I think they want to have those pieces in place in three years. Mm-hmm. So 2023, the end of 2023 is when they want to have those pieces in place and know what they've got. So that's kind of what you're looking at. BART 2021 is going to be, honestly, I think it's going to be his AAA year. He's not going to be on the active roster to start the year if I, assuming everything goes as a normal year. I wouldn't put him on the money starting this year in the active roster. He'll be doing a Buster Posey coming up in May or June. Um, Elliot Ramos, hopefully we'll see him in 2021. Bishop, I hope we'll see at the end of 2021. And I know that's a big rush, but I I really think that you're going to see that out of Bishop. So we'll see beyond that. Um, again, the pitchers up is going to be a bigger question because right now, outside of Jelly, a lot of the depth is down at the lower levels like Seth Corey and Kyle Harrison. I don't think Kyle's going to beat uh, Luciano to the majors. He's probably going to come up a little bit later. Uh, but that's that's what I'd look at. The long answer, looking at the end of 2023 to see if this stuff is in place. Yeah, you know, I'm a bit higher on their prospects. I think it's more because I actually, again, while I we were just quite critical of Zaidi, potentially, I am quite confident in his ability to kind of build on the fringes. Like, I do think he's able, he's done a good job of identifying guys and finding players who even if that Luciano isn't there, that they're going to be able to be competent at every position. And I think that gives them a pretty good floor as a, you know, 77 to 83, 84 win team as is. And again, there's a range in there, right? And, you know, mm-hmm. if uh, Yastrzemski maintains the caliber of play we saw in 2020, and again, I think there's reasons to question if that can sustain over 162-game season. But if that falls into place, or again, like you mentioned, you know, Luciano comes in, and hits immediately or, you know, Joey Bart becomes sort of the caliber of player that we expect sooner than we, you know, sooner than we expect, then I think that can push you. And then you're looking at sort of an 80 to 85 win team, 81 to 86 win team. And then as you get to those Harrisons, you know, the bishops or whatnot, I'm, I think I'm sort of with Roger Muncher where I think we lean, obviously the injury pre Canario's injury, which obviously changes that. I think we were higher on Canario and had some trepidation with Bishop, but you seem on the opposite side of that. And I think both the, there's arguments definitely for both and Bishop's the older player. Bishop obviously performed in the pac 12, you know, last year to an incredible degree. So I think there is the possibility that he blows up quickly. I think that moves it as well, but I think, Part of it, too, that's so difficult, right, is the Padres and Dodgers just act as such a complicated factor. <laughs> well, I, I like where the Padres and Dodgers are just because it should take the pressure off the Giants. Mm-hmm. We're not expected to contend with those two. We're going to be in also-ran, and that's a good time to start building a team and then come out of nowhere. So yeah. we'll see. And I, I want to throw this out. Um, you know, we've, we've thrown out a lot of names here for a lot of prospects, but I'm going to tell you uh, three names that I'm starting to look at as linchpins because we, we talk about the stars. You know, we talk about the yeah. Lucianos and the Barts and the Ramos, and they're obviously important. But you know who was important to the Giants run in the early 2010s? Brandon Belt, Brandon Crawford. Yep. These are guys who weren't the high expectations belt had that insane 2011 um but yeah they they, you weren't really expecting much out of them and the giants got a lot of bang for their buck in terms of what round they were picked at and how they did and uh i'll give you three names that i think are going to be important to keep an eye on if the giants are going to become a complete team at least on the uh position side of the ball the first one is logan wyatt Mm -hmm. uh left-handed first baseman he needs to show a little bit more power, but he's got great plate discipline. There's a lot to like about him at the plate, similar to Brandon Belt. Hopefully his fielding is up to snuff. But he also provides that left-handed platoon that the Giants may like at first base when Posey and or Bart are playing there. Uh, second one I'll say is Casey Schmidt, and I'm starting to come around on him. I wasn't expecting a lot out of him when I heard his name in the uh, draft this year. Uh, but the fact they popped up on Jim Callis's list as the Giants' best defender, that, w- that was a big surprise. Like, they were talking before the draft that he had the tools to be a, a plus defender. To be the best in the system is a different story. And third base has been a problem area for the Giants since Pablo Sandoval left the first time. Uh, and then finally, and this is a third name that I, I personally am a big fan of. I know not a lot of people are, but that's Simon Whiteman. Mm. Uh, this kid out of Yale, 
he plays smart. He's got speed. He's not going to hit for power. If Luciano ends up being a third baseman, Whiteman is a guy who can slide in a shortstop and help nail that. If he doesn't, Whiteman's the kind of guy who could be that super utility. And the Giants use those super utility players quite a bit. I remember Arias back in the day. I think Whiteman could be that guy that could be that fire off the bench, really intelligent player who gets stuff done. And whether it's spelling Will Wilson at uh, second base, Luciano at shortstop, or playing all over the infield, uh, I think Whiteman's another one of those linchpins that could really kind of fill out the Giants roster and make them a contender. So Wyatt, Schmidt, Whiteman. Sorry. No, you're all good. Yeah, I, I'm right there with you with Schmidt because I had the same reaction when he was taken. I was kind of a bit hesitant on the pick. I kind of liked him as almost a high floor, low ceiling kind of guy who could be a utility power bat and with his relief pitcher, you, you potential kind of a weird one to two war player. But I've also kind of come around in that I can see sort of, you know, with the defense and the power coming together, he could be really good. Now, again, at third base, I really like Luis Toribio, who's, you know, another one of those young international free agent signings, but he's really developed. I think he's a guy you know, people are talking about the Lucianos. People are talking about, you know, they know about the Bishops. But if there's like a young guy who's going to make the big leagues at 21, 22 and come out of nowhere, like no one's really going to see it coming. It, you know, maybe a Pablo Sandoval is an example, <laughs> um, you know, but just in terms of right, Pablo wasn't a big pick. Pablo wasn't a big time prospect. And then all of a sudden he's hitting 330 at AA. He gets the call and, you know, the rest is kind of history. And so I think I think that guy could be Toribio, right? Being as young as he is, being as advanced, he's incredible at bats just great job um really disciplined hitter working walks but also has some above average power potential and above average hit tool but schmidt has all the tools to be a premium third baseman as well and i think he's i think you mentioned you know names right of guys like wyatt and schmidt are tests of you know they are gambles on your player development staff right wyatt has impeccable plate discipline probably potential average to above average power and a good hit can you build that can you develop him in a way where he can start hitting for power and end up being a brandon belt or one comp i like is a justin morneau right if everything comes together mm-hmm. and you know on the schmidt side right he didn't perf- you know he didn't perform up to the draft stock or the tools when you looked at his numbers but if you look can your player development staff put that together and make an above average to elite everyday player? And I think that's there. On my side of it, I'll sort of go back with three guys I really like in the system. I am super high on Tristan Beck and continue to be. I know he's had injury issues, but I think, you know, you kind of have this happen with prospects where when they have top prospects stats, which he did in college, and then it really fell. And then he had the, you know, injuries and with the shoulder, which is no doubt a concern. But, you know, I think people are really hesitant to give that back to a prospect once they've taken it. And I think he's someone who, had we had a season, might have even made a big league debut come September in a normal year because I think he was well positioned to do well at AA and earn a promotion um, to AAA. And I think he's one of those guys who, again, you mentioned, who's going to be there with Jelly that could slide into a rotation if even if Logan Webb is a guy, even if Kevin Gallison's there long term. And I think Beck is one of those guys who might have a little more upside because of that prospect pedigree, because of the kind of caliber performance we've seen at one point. A guy I'm high on now, again, the big league fit is he's heavily blocked, but I think Ricardo Genovese is a really good catcher. And I think he's going to be a big league everyday player. And I think he could be a guy we see end up the Giants trading in you know, some trade for another piece, because I think he's too good of a prospect to end up being Joey Bart or Patrick Bailey's backup. And I think another team is going to want to take advantage of that. And the last one, again, I'll stick by Armani Smith. I really do think he has a lot of the characteristics that Hunter Bishop did to a lesser extent with what he did at UCSB. And again, the Big West is not a Power 5 conference, but it's right up there as, you know, with elite baseball. And I'm not just saying that because I'm from Hawaii. And, you know, Armani Smith is a guy who has above average to plus power potential. He is a good athlete who can be a good defensive corner outfielder. And we saw him take a big jump from his sophomore to junior season. I was really excited to see if he could carry that over. And one actually out of the box name who I've never talked to on this podcast, but it's just so interesting is Connor Cannon. <laughs> you know, late what round, a name. Yeah. Great name, 80 grade name, but actually potentially 80 grade power. Also an amazing arm, also an incredibly long injury history, but that's just a guy who's, 
just seems fun to watch. I'm just really excited to see his development through the system. Well, I absolutely love your picks. And I got to say, Armani is possibly the guy that's benefited the most out of nothing happening in 2020 because he's ended up in the instructional league getting some really nice highlights. And after you get past Luciano absolutely being mean to a baseball, after you get past that and the Luis Matos, you've got Armani. And I mean, he's got a beautiful swing. I haven't seen enough of him to see what his pitch selection is like. But I love everything that's there together. I love the fact he's a Bay Area kid. I love the name. Uh, but he's he really could come out and start surprising people. So I absolutely love uh, giving him that mention. And uh, yeah, Connor Cannon. Now, Connor Cannon is... Whew, um, I mean, he's got... Uh, I can't think of his name, the catcher from Major League. But he's got that oh, yeah. guy's knees at 25. But... Yeah, you, you stand him upright you know, at a in a batter's box, and he could deliver that Kirk Gibson moment. Uh, and yes, I just quoted a Dodgers moment on a Giants podcast, <laughs> mea culpa. Um, but, the, I mean, that's something that I do like about Zaidi's draft strategy. And you go back to a lot of the players he's drafted, and we mentioned this about, you know, trying to develop, is he is looking for a singular tool that stands out and try to build around it on a player. Yeah. And that is something that you didn't see as much with the Sabian drafts. Sabian liked, give me an all around player, not a lot of ceiling, but a high floor. And let's play him up to that level. And sometimes it worked. Sometimes a lot of the time it didn't. Um, When he tried to go toolsy, things went bad quickly i'm looking at you wendell fairly i'm sorry um but you know you look at what zaidi has been doing and you know you got the power guy in a connor cannon or you look at a blake rivera and that mm-hmm. curveball um you know you see the tools he's trying to build around and i like that i think it's a great strategy and i'll, I'll be critical of zaidi i'm probably more critical than a lot of people of zaidi uh, on Giants Twitter, but I'll give him props for the things that he's trying to do. And I like those kinds of things that they're aiming for. We'll see how it works out. It's going to take four or five years to make a grade, but that's, you know, it's one of the reasons why I like Logan Wyatt. Like you can build on a guy who can see balls at a plate because that's not something that goes away. Or at least if it does, it's one of the things you can actually enhance with good LASIK surgery. Um, sorry, chemicals don't work. Surgery does. But, I mean, that's the thing, is you can build around these guys. So we'll see how it goes. I do like uh, Luis Toribio. Uh, I just like calling him the bull. I think that sounds better. Uh, We'll see how it goes with his development. He's also on that Canario level where, you know, he's got to prove himself. He's got to prove that polish, and we're going to see. But, yeah, we're going to see how it goes. With Ricardo, yeah, I like him, but... As with a catcher, there's no such thing as a pitching prospect, and catching prospects are close behind. So we'll see. Uh, we'll we'll see how that goes. Yeah, I do think, in partly because I have a requiem on Bobby Evans piece coming out that I am excited to see my Twitter mentions on soon. Um, check that out soon, guys. But um, you know, the thing about the Evans, and again, this is where we can talk about player development, and perhaps they were identifying the wrong guys, but they drafted a fair number of toolsy guys you know you look at a gary brown you look at a even you know there was a stretch where they were drafting you know big time power hitters ricky or comes to mind right every year they just didn't pan out and you know we can well and to be fair they drafted brandon bell although he wasn't ironically he was one who didn't look like the tools he picked right you know and right. he ends up um ending up with the better ceiling i think there is clearly a difference though in the type of guys they target right because they targeted a lot of guys who again had big time power. You look at a Jarrett Parker, you look at a Ricky or a Pacer, right? Chris but, Dominguez. Yes, Chris Dominguez. That's a great name. And they, you know, showed that power in college, but also showed a lot of strikeouts in college. And you're seeing Zaida Zaidi approach it from the opposite realm. Where if there's a guy in college, he may have power or not, but if he has a lot of strikeouts, they're 
they're shying away from that guy. They're they're clearly, you know, looking towards and to be fair, right, say or Evans, Sabian, and the John Barrier, they drafted Joey Bart, who I think if you go back, I think a Zaidi front office looks at a guy like Alec Bohm more than they look at a guy like Joey Bart, but that's neither here nor there. And, you know, they are they're shying away from those guys with the strikeouts, but they're willing to look at a guy like Armani Smith or, you know, who or even some other guys, you know, like a Logan Wyatt who may not have the power playing, but he's showing discipline. He's putting the ball in play and they're going, you know, we trust our development staff to help him develop a swing that could tap into that power and develop. And it's it's different approaches. Again, you're right. Time will tell how it goes. But I have to say I've been quite impressed by the early returns kevin i've taken up enough of your time <laughs> on this saturday thank you oh, we, very we much. aren't going to talk about averson ortega and all that <laughs> no <laughs> yeah, yeah but thank you for having me this has been a wonderful afternoon and obviously we're gonna have a lot more to talk about in the future definitely uh, tell tell the listeners where they can fo- where they can follow you on twitter where they can read all your new stuff well uh you can follow me at uh at sf giant futures that's not Giants Futures. It's Singular Giant because, I don't know, I can't put a big spin on that. But you can also find me at GiantFutures.com. I also still post more humorous, less baseball-oriented stuff at SF Lunatic Fringe. The name really does apply. So, yeah, follow me on Twitter. See me on the website. And uh, I hope to have all of you readers soon. Thank you uh, for joining us today, Kevin. I am your host. Mark DeLuke. You can follow me on Twitter at Mad DeLuke. That's M-A-D-D-E-L-U-C-C-H-I. Make sure to keep up with all of San Francisco Giants related news, rumors, and opinions at AroundTheFoghorn.com. You can follow us on Twitter at AroundTheFoghorn. Drop the A. The rest is the same. Thank you for listening to us. Hope you have a great week. <laughs>